Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to Episode 5 of our monthly Connecting with Classics series, where I, Aaron, and my co-host, Don Shanahan of Every Movie Has a Lesson, have a conversation about a widely regarded great film from the past. Don and I want this to be a participatory experience, and we want to encourage you to all watch more classic films. So we'll be giving out cool stuff at the end of the year to those of you who write and share reviews of the film that we're covering by commenting or discussing with us in the Feelin' Film Facebook group. These interactions will earn you entries into an end-of-the-year prize drawing for a poster of the Connecting with Classics movie of your choice, plus podcast swag and more. For listeners who do not wish to be a part of that discussion group, if you don't have a Facebook account or that's not your thing, you can also email reviews to feelinfilm at gmail.com, and we will accept those. Aaron, we got a nice little month here, folks. The stars are aligning here at the end of May for Connecting with Classics. Ron Howard's 26th directorial effort. Solo, a Star Wars story, hit the big screen this past Memorial Day weekend. It graces cinema audiences with a backstory of the iconic character made famous by Harrison Ford, namely Han Solo. The happenstance of Ron Howard treading into Harrison Ford's territory brought brought to mind an American classic that turns 45 years old this year. Hop into your car of choice, roll down the windows, turn your music up, and drive it slow as we spin American graffiti for Connecting with Classics in May. I love that this intro you just gave, Don, is almost like you're a radio DJ because that ties into this movie so well. Oh, I know. I wish I had like a Wolfman Jack voice to like do that again. Like, hey, hop in your car, roll the windows down, turn oh, the music up be... and drive it slow while we spin American graffiti. Oh, I love it. I love uh, it so much. But... You, know, you know what stuck out to me about that, though, is that Ron Howard's 26th directorial effort. I, mm-hmm. Ron Howard has 26 movies. 26. Gosh. I had to count before putting that down. How far into his directing run was Willow? Because that was early 80s. Ooh, um, let's see here. His first, um, I remember doing the math here because I was looking up just kind of how far he's gone here. He did three short films before doing American Graffiti here in 1973. And then I want to say four years later in 77 is when he made his directorial debut. So if we could do 77 to about, what, 87, 88, I got to think he was six eight films in by yeah, ben he was young when he started terrific. he must yeah. be really young if he if he started right after this movie because he, he was, was still a, acting yeah he was a ni- 19 year old making this film and if he made three shorts before that now we're talking about like you know jgl yeah. you know young guy stuff you know just making films so that's awesome oh, no he's um he's legit in the young department in terms of getting started as a film itself though folks we do gotta say spoiler warning we are a podcast that is best listened to after you've seen the film, so turn it off now and come back later if you haven't seen American Graffiti. Awesome. Well, I'm going to run down real quick the rankings for this particular film. As always, we like to focus on the AFI Top 100 100th Anniversary list. That's the one that we are working from in this series right now. And there's a couple different iterations of this list. In 1998, American Graffiti checked in at number 77 which is quite high quite uh, high it was originally ahead of films like rocky the deer hunter and modern times unbelievable in 2007 which is the 10th anniversary list that we like to focus on 
It was Updo number 62, mm-hmm. ahead of Network, The African Queen, Unforgiven, A Clockwork Orange, Saving Private Ryan, and The Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. In, uh, so, two- folks. Yeah, yeah. Get your barometers and rulers out on that one, you know. I think we're going to talk about that a bit. I think we're going <laughs> to talk about uh, that a bit, too. In uh, the year 2000, there's also some specific AFI lists that get put out. And, and this one was the 100 laughs, so the comedies. And it checked in at number 43 overall. I, I did not look at what number 43 puts it ahead of on the other 57, but I bet there's some funnier movies between 44 and 99. You know what's funny? And just as a quick precursor to when we start talking about the film, I will say... I did not immediately walk out of this. Well, I didn't walk out of this film at all. I got up off my couch. I did not get up off my couch thinking, wow, that was a comedy. No, I would neither. not even necessarily put it in that genre Mm-mm. myself. No, no I the, think for, yeah, I think for folks walking into this, I'd call this kind of, I mean, I think this is your classic dramedy, you know, there's there you go. lighthearted moments that, but there's still heaviness of coming of age and all this stuff like that, where, no, I think it's a dramedy because the heavy themes are there in terms of growing up and trying to get out of this town and some different to them. But at the same time, it's lighthearted. It's fun. It's the, you know, it's the soundtrack, it's the music and all the stuff we're going to talk about. Awesome. Well, what about the awards, man? What did this one garner in that area? Did it win? I'm assuming it must have or it wouldn't be on this list. Right. No, this was a, um, if I'm doing the math right here, it's a five Oscar nominee film from 1973. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director. Best Supporting Actress from Candy Clark, who plays our kind of um, our Toad's kind of girl in the film a little bit. Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. It lost every single one of them. Um, the Juggernaut, the, yeah, shocker. The Juggernaut that year in 1973 was The Sting, and, and that kind of won a bit of everything. Um, in terms of Best Supporting Actress, that was Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon, which was uh, your youngest Best Supporting Actress, actually, I think, youngest acting winner in history, period. Yeah, it kind of lost everything there. It did have some nods along the way from the Directors Guild of America and the Writers Guild of America for its work at, from Lucas and then also Gloria Katz and Willard uh, Hayek for the screenplay and directing work there a little bit. Um, it did win because you can kind of split this in terms of categories, and I'm surprised by this. It did win the Best Picture of Musical or Comedy half of the Golden Globes, but to me, I laugh more over the sting, but I guess that's one of those weird Golden Globe <laughs> entries where that was a drama. I don't know. As usual, films that make this list that we've been doing for Connecting with Classics do get that National Film Registry kind of nod in terms of being uh, stored and, or I guess, uh, you know, stored and preserved and historical value that, that got done in 1995. Um, this was a runaway monetary success. It put George Lucas kind of on the map and the money from this bankrolled what would become this little indie sci-fi film called Star Wars. And those investors Investments into the to making Star Wars turned into Lucasfilm, Skywalker Sound, and Industrial Light Magic. All companies that would not have gotten started by Lucas without the money from this film. And that is fascinating. That, yeah. that backstory is pretty cool to know mm-hmm. that this film that is nothing like what you think of when you think of George Lucas is the one that actually bankrolled. And, and I have no problem with no. this being a box office success. It's a, it's a good summer movie, and I can absolutely see, especially in the era of drive-in, it's like, oh, this yeah. movie, you want to go see it at drive-in. So that makes a lot of sense to me. No, I think I think with the, the times of when it came out, you know, um, in the disillusion post-Vietnam 1973, yeah, this is a disposable summer entertainment, easygoing film. And I think that's where it fits. 
David Fincher loved this as a kid. Uh, he called it the visual inspiration for Fight Club, of all things. And again, I don't know how you plug those two d- things together, but maybe it's the, the neon and the cars and the the shooting. And then, and I, I don't know. I'd have to dig a little Fincher history on that. If there is a low light that kind of go that goes with the highlights, this spawned a very forgettable direct 1979 sequel called More American Graffiti, where it took all those epilogue notes from the end of the film. You get those really tacked on, this is where so-and-so ended up when they got older kind of thing. And it turns those epilogue notes into stories. Um, and everyone of the primary cast, including Harrison Ford, who became far more famous after 1979, uh, returned. Everyone, The only main cast member who didn't return from more American Graffiti was Richard Dreyfuss. And um, I don't know if that's Dreyfuss kind of playing the big-time card, but uh, if Harrison Ford can show up, I'm surprised Dreyfuss didn't. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of your rundown of history intriguing. and and placement, but for a film that didn't win anything other than a, a, a nice little, you know, nice little chunk of Golden Globe, I can't put this top 70 all time. And I know we're going to keep going on this, but um, I don't know. Where's your measuring stick on this one, Aaron? Well, first of all, th- my history with this film is brand new. So I had an interesting experience watching it because I had no idea what the plot was. And that is a very, very, very very rare occurrence for me. I'm not talking about just not having seen a trailer. I'm talking about I knew the name of this film. I knew it was on a list of best movies. I knew it was directed by George Lucas. And I knew that it had a hot rod car on the poster. And that is literally all I knew about it. And so I didn't have context. And it was the best part of my experience maybe was getting to just go into this and and be given this story and this this experience that I wasn't prepared for. So I really liked that. And it's something that I think I'm actually going to seek out and it goes beyond just avoiding spoilers for those of us that are in the movie world. We're all movie lovers. We're in movie discussion groups. I mean, it's kind of a perfect storm where this happens, where I'm able to pick up a film and just have no clue anything about it. It happened again today. I was scrolling through Amazon prime and I was like, Ooh, Manhunter, That's a Michael Mann movie that I need mm-hmm. to catch up with. And I didn't know anything about it. I just knew, hey, that's the Michael Mann movie that I'm missing. Let me watch this. And I got to be blown away by some of the things that are in that film and what its plot is. That's what happened to me with American Graffiti. I got to say, the coolest thing, though, when you see, when you don't know what you're going to get and you see an opening production note that says Lucasfilm slash Coppola production, Mm -hmm. it puts you in a mindset to expect absolute greatness yeah and it did not grip me right away and i thought it was me and by the end i don't think it was me but and i'll get into why but did you what was your experience with this have you seen it before i've seen uh i've seen bits and pieces pieces of it since i was a kid um so i knew what i was getting into um this is i'll talk about a little later a little longer but um this is one of my mother's all-time favorite movies and she thinks for god's sakes she thinks i look like ron howard when i have my red hair and the floppiness and all that and i could be a doppelganger for ron if i grew this thing out and lost 50 pounds more this was easily this past weekend here my most complete watch of the film in easily 20 years like i said bits and pieces as a teenager as a kid this might even be my most complete watch of it ever i where i maybe never really did add it up until now there was definitely more that i didn't remember than i did um and maybe some of that's adulthood and what i picked up on now compared to what i picked up as a teen you know i think as a teen i'm probably like oh wow great soundtrack cool cars that looks cool hey is that harrison ford and then it's you know then now I pick it up as, 
oh look it's you know charles martin you know smith from the untouchables it's the oldest looking 17 year old richard dreyfus it's it's all kinds of little hey that's shirley from the vernon shirley you know i, I we have gotten too knowledgeable enough where even if it's a raw watch we can't help but pick up little things and from what i'm told coppola was very much more of a benefactor to kind of get lucas off the ground and they've been collaborative ever since i mean if you hear about those legendary stories of how lucas will screen his films for his closest buds coppola's on that list up to you know to this day you know coppola gets first look at at stuff that you know spielberg i shouldn't say spielberg that lucas rolls out spielberg's on that list i think ron howard's been on that list for a long time where that's kind of the inner circle of collaborators and you know inspiration so that i mean that's that's a nice benefactor to have is francis Ford coppola yeah no kidding my initial reaction to this coming out of it i had a good time and i'm glad that i had a good time because what i found out is like your mom this is actually one of my co-hosts patrick's favorite movies i did not know that until we had agreed to cover it and he was like oh hey i love that movie when are you doing it and i was like oh now there's pressure i hope i i hope i do it justice but it, it doesn't surprise me. It's a movie that I understand the style being something that appeals to him. One thought that I had right away was this feels more like a Richard Linkletter movie to me than it did a George Lucas movie. That's I could, a good comp. That's a very good comp. felt like this was, could have been one of his films. And the other thought that I have not been able to shake since seeing this a few nights ago is a comparison to something totally different. And I want to play this out. The movie that I continue to think about is Can't Hardly Wait. Now, mm. are you familiar with this? Ethan and Brady? Uh, yeah, vaguely. I, mean, I, okay. I haven't touched it since 98. So, I mean, that that's 20 years for me. So here's the way that I compare these and the reason that I immediately started thinking about it. Can't Hardly Wait is a different generation. It's a 90s generation who is it's all it's got the same 90s type music that's a focus, whereas this has a, a younger generation with music as the focus. And it's got that same one night style of interwoven stories in can't hardly wait. We have a main character who is trying to get the attention of a girl at a party, which parallels with the main theme or main storyline in this film. And then we have kind of other characters around that with different things happening. And then they all kind of come to a point where they come together. Everybody has this epic one last night before going off into college or, or going off into the summer. This is a common movie theme that's been done multiple times but for in can't hardly wait it's very very similar and because i couldn't shake that comparison i was like there's nothing groundbreaking about this at all so i'm wondering if maybe this was one of the first movies to do that and that yeah. is particularly why it's considered this high because i just don't see how this stands out to be on that list at all Right. No, I think if, if we get the calendar out and we try to play historian here, this obviously predates Can Hardly Wait 1998. It predates Days to Confuse in 1995. All these little, I'm with you, those one night only kind of party things. You could even take Doug, Doug Lyman's Go as another example on this, you know, where I think that theme's been done. And I'm, I, I would love to sit down and kind of dig and find out, well, how many other one night only situations predate 1973? Because you're right. If this is the one that started that trope, if we want to call it a trope, well, then, yeah, you tip the hat and go, nice work. I mean, this is a really good – if this is the first one you ever see, that's pretty darn good. You you, you, merge a lot of, you merge a lot of stories together. You nail a lot of themes. 
you do it in a unique kind of way between the shooting, the storytelling and the music where, yeah, I mean, if that's a revolutionary achievement, I'll tip my hat. But it's hard because we've been kind of um, desensitized since I, I, I admit I'm going to have the same problem in about two weeks when we watch The Incredibles 2, for example, where. The first Incredibles, I'll try to keep this short, came out in 2004, which, you know, was early in this whole superhero trend kind of thing where all we had was a Brian Singer X-Men movie, a really crappy Ang Lee Hulk and, and Spider-Man from Sam Raimi. That's it. Now, 14 years later, we have had everything and not just everything, but reboots of this and reboots of that where what can the Incredible to, Incredibles 2 do now that, you know, in a revolutionary or groundbreaking way that doesn't seem overtreaded to where it already started or where it came from. So yeah, I, if this is where American graffiti is, all right, good job. You, you deserve your pedestal, but I don't know. Well, overall I, I enjoyed it. So I just, I don't want to have the tone of this be a total knock on the film. I, I still think it's worth seeing. And I think that's particularly one of the reasons is, is it very possibly is that beginning of this kind of, type of film that we are all very familiar with now, but I just couldn't place it on this list. I had the same problem when I saw the African queen personally Mm -hmm. was not thinking to myself like, and that's, that's an issue for a lot of people. And we'll, you know, we're suggesting that you rewatch classic movies and we're using this list because we need a starting point of something. Right. But everybody's taste is different. And it doesn't mean that every single one of these films is going to be a five-star film for you as a viewer, just like it's not for me and it's not for Don. And this is just one of those for me. It was very good. It had lots of stuff that I liked. It had plenty of stuff that I was like, eh, okay. And there's not a lot that I don't like per se. Right. There's just a lot of meh for me. Ineffectual stuff, if you want to use the fancy word. One fun thing that stood out to me is, I don't know if you caught this, but when the, the yellow Ford... Deuce Coop is driving off in the first shot. I'm sure it shows it again uh, multiple times. Mm -hmm. The Milner's license plate is THX 138, Mm -hmm. which is Lucas's first film. Oh, yeah. And it's apparently a thing that Lucas continued using throughout his career. That's the reason that he called the sound, uh, unique sound thing that he developed. That's why we have THX sound design. Um, and so I just thought that was a fun little nod that I noticed. And then with that car, I'm not a car guy myself, mm-hmm. so I don't go bonkers. I think people that are car people are going to get more out of this film than I would because they're going to be oogling the different different wheels. Me, oh, yeah. I don't. But canary yellow is my favorite color for a vehicle. So I did have some fun looking at this thing all the way through the movie. It was it was a treat to watch. Mm-hmm. No, for me, I think the film, to, to kind of sum it up in terms of a reaction, one of the best at one thing, is, and that would be a period detail time capsule, you know, because this is a 1973 film making a 1962 scene. And you would think, oh, nine years, how much could have really changed? But then you look at all the stuff that's changed between 1962 and 1973. And when you look at that staggering amount of history that's there, you know, 
the British invasion of rock and roll where, you know, they took over from where doo-wop and American stuff got its start. The assassination of John F. Kennedy, the onset of the Vietnam War, the whole progressive hippie movements of the 60s, all that stuff, you know, filled the nine years of history between the setting of them, which was Lucas's kind of teenage years. And when they make this film in a very disillusioned and different time where, to me, I have to think if I'm playing time traveler myself, if I watch this film in 1973, I look at 1962 and go, where did that time go? You know, because that era is something I don't think we've ever really recaptured. And they do it in such a stylistically awesome way. Like you said, those cars, the neon, the different people's values, the attitudes, the angst, the optimism. This is still kind of, you can almost feel like this is still a 1962 that's digging on James Dean and how that still reverberates before something else cool came along to change it. So I don't know. I look at this film Yes, it is way overranked and I can't put it as a, as a, as a top two thirds kind of film for, for the AFI. Um, it's fine. It's a good classic for what it is. If it is where the stereotypes got their start, not bad. I can't help but look at it where I have to kind of put myself in that time and say, it's just a nice warm slice of a bygone era of simplicity. One where frivolity and exuberance that I don't think our country has ever matched exist. And that's kind of cool to go back and go, gosh. How cool would it be to, you know, just cruise the streets in 1962, not worry about getting drafted, not worry about the civil rights movement, not worry about where we are now, 80s and 90s, where we grew up would be more technology and and the communication stuff has changed. You do now and it's terrorism and different kinds of racial injustice where I don't know if that's the last gasp uh, appearance or a glimpse into a in a historical period. It's cool to see. And I'll tip my hat that far with it. Well, for me. On the story of this, and I'm going to stay away from our connecting point and our lessons. For me, the story of this, I had hits and misses with different pieces of it. Thing that I liked a lot was the relationship between Carol and John that develops. I thought it did a great job of showing, you know, this younger girl who happens to jump in his car and he's very it's very awkward for him. And he's like, I don't want anything to do with this. You're, you know, 12 and Mm -hmm. this is wrong. But she ends up kind of softening him over the course of the film. And I think she's able to bring out this sensitive and fun side of him that he clearly is keeping locked away underneath his tough, you know, hot rod racing image. Yeah. And so I thought that pairing stood out. Whereas I did not have nearly as much connection when it came to Kurt's story. And honestly, I personally felt like I was checking out mentally a bit during it. I just didn't think it was that engaging until he met Wolfman. And once he ends up in the radio station meeting Wolfman, it started to click a little more for me. But there was a big portion of the film where one of those storylines just didn't grab me. So I was wondering if, which ones did you like the most or which one did you like the most? And did anything check you out like that? Yeah. Um, my, I match you a lot. Uh, uh, I, I, I have to think that the most central story here is Kurtz with Dreyfus and the lead and same thing. Uh, I, I didn't care. I mean, don't get me wrong. My head turned when Suzanne Summers was the blonde in the car. Cause I'm a threes company guy and Suzanne Summers is gorgeous. So I, I'm yeah, I would love to know what that girl is too, but I don't care. I don't care that he kind of mixed up with the wrong little gang for a little bit. I don't care that he was aimless through the night. The Wolfman Jack part's nice and all because it gets us Wolfman Jack, but same thing. I just did not connect with her. I was checked out. Um, I admit I was kind of equally checked out with Carol and John, 
mainly because I don't know, I couldn't make the bridge with the 12 year old thing. I also think you couldn't make that movie today. I'm glad you bring that up because yeah. I actually wrote down in my notes, me too violation. Not that mm. I'm that guy that, that looks for this and I care, but I don't, I don't think that the world would like this today. No, no. because that scene in the vehicle where she threatens to scream rape unless mm-hmm. he does what she says. Yeah. That, that would not hold up. And I, what I do like is that, well, I guess I don't like this either, but I, the film then tries to make up for it yeah. later by John tricking her via coming on to her, which he knows is going to ha- – he, he does that knowing that she is going to reject him and yeah. then give him the address so that he can take her home. But I don't think audiences today would react very well to that method. <laughs> no, of, they would not. Of effort, Yeah. So if there's a connecting, if there's a place where I was connected and wanted to go, um, I like Ron Howard's story. You know, um, I didn't have not so much because I had a girl in high school that I was leaving behind when I was going to leave and graduate and all that. I didn't, I didn't have that. You know, I, I had a nice girlfriend in high school, but it wasn't one of those leave her behind when I leave kind of things. But I liked that that arc of it. I liked how he was somewhat generous to Toad, and because I, I was kind of that dude and friend who would be generous to the underclassmen underneath. And at the same time, um. I don't know, girl, girl problems or something that I, I have, I've run into enough where that's kind of, um, yeah, I grabbed onto that. How do you, how do you keep a good face in, in a relationship you feel like it's crumbling? I, I enjoy that that had peaks and valleys. I enjoy that they had kind of, you know, stay together, keep up makeup kinds of things as they went and all that. And yeah, their ups and downs move the night all right for me, but it's hard because you're right. It mixes in. The Carolyn John sketchy parts, the Kurt weakness, and and Toad's fun. I, I, if anything, I also like Toad because I was, you know, who had the glasses and the dumb red hair and and couldn't couldn't score very good girls. So car would have been a, a cool way of doing that. And even though I had a car in high school, it, it sure didn't work to score chicks. Even though I thought it could, let me tell you. Right. Well, the characters here are interesting to me. I waiting and waiting and waiting for Harrison Ford to show up because I knew he was in it. Since you told me he was, and I'm like, where are you going to be? And then when he does show up, it's this over-the-top, juicy country role. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Come on, boy, let's go, prove it. I I, I don't know. It was was really interesting to watch. I don't know if I loved it. I just know that it made me smile because I was like, it was something I had not seen Harrison Ford do. Yeah. Let Uh, me tell you. It was very eclectic. If you want some fun stories, I, I, I saw a dip of this just looking into the Wikipedia page, but behind the scenes shenanigans that they all had are just like borderline arrest worthy and legendary where just the drinking, the destruction, the, I, they had a heck of a time on this movie making it. And, and Harrison in his prime of youth was the hard drinker getting everybody else in trouble and, and people trying to hang with that. And I'm I, the rabble rouser Harrison was definitely. Awesome. It fit the part that he ended up getting to play. So it's now I'm cool even to see him. more sure it's really a Richard Linklater movie in disguise. That's the thing. Like, here we go, re- you know, rewinding the timeline. Or is Richard Linklater been is he inspired to- by this, right? Exactly. Is he trying to ape this since then? So Absolutely. he's made that kind of movie forever. So the other one that stuck out to me is that Richard Dreyfus, for all it's worth, I could not stop thinking that this is a young Paul Rudd. I don't know okay. if you could see that in his face, but man, did it jump out at me 
Um, for me, it was more just his age. Like he's not a convincing 17. He's 26 making this film, you know, two years before he made Jaws. So no, I look at Richard Dreyfus in this film. I'm like, dude, who is, whose older brother is that? Who's the creeper in the khakis still hanging around? Like, you know, almost Linklater-esque is the college guy trying to hit on high school girls. Like, where's this character coming from? So, um, but no, he's got some, he's got some rudisms. I'm with you on that. Or here we go is Rudd aping. Right. <laughs> of course. So, yeah. yeah. When it comes to the ending of this film, I actually, I like it. Okay. Not the epilogue. I like the ending. I like the race and the crash. Mm. And then the driving to everybody, you know, going their separate ways, kind of the, the night has ended and we have a new lease on life and we realize there's a little more value to life than we've yeah. been living it with. So I enjoy that. I think that's a good story and i i didn't feel it was a tacked on forced type of ending with the severity like the car crash and the potential death is a big deal mm-hmm. and there are other films in the genre that it's a lot harder to do that you know maybe somebody overdoses at a college party i guess you could yeah. use it as a similarity to a modern day trope but mm-hmm. i thought it made sense two guys are gonna race and it's very likely that they could crash and it could be this type of danger involved in that the epilogue though i cringed when you told me that they made a second movie based on the epilogue Ooh. i do not know why that exists and yeah. the, the, it, it harmed the movie for me like i i guess it shouldn't it's almost like a post credit scene that you should just ignore yeah. but i was like why why is this here why am i reading this right now because i felt like i had to and i didn't want to know any of that it didn't add anything at all to the movie in my opinion did it work for you did it help did it make it better um, no i'm with you I, th- go your separate ways let the mystery of that be enough you know especially because here we go again it's 1973 it's only nine years after this film was supposed to take place we could probably make a really good guess or even society at, at its time could make a really good guess as to why it ended up someone would have wanted to know someone would have never left home someone would have went to college and got smart you know so i don't think we needed it to be defined. Let that be a mystery of where you see where these characters, like you said, have changed, have grown, have kind of accepted where their next steps are going to be. And let those elude or let those first clues be enough. You right. know, let us think that Richard Dreyfus is going to leave, but he's going to regret it. Or he's going to see that T-bird from the plane and go, you know what? I'm going to, I might land, but I'm going to take the next flight right back home. I, leave a little of the mystery there. I think would have been a, a stronger finish than the tack on. And then, yeah, if you need a plot description for more American graffiti, go to Wikipedia and be amazed at how much they try to wring that wet towel with uh, extending those epilogues into actual stories where, spoiler alert, because we're already here, like Toad, who was said to be missing in action in Vietnam, like faked his death and is trying to get around like it. They, you can tell it goes too far and it is hokey. Lucas was involved, I think as a producer, but not the director. It's like forcing tragedy with that part too. I was like, why do we need to do that? We don't, we just don't need that. So I I have no no interest at all in seeing that one. No, I, I, I think if I ever have, because again, my mom was a big fan in 79 would have been about where I was born and she would have been 28 and probably equally as disillusioned at that point. So I don't know. I, I, I don't remember ever seeing that one. Fun fact for that one. Last thing I'll say on more American graffiti, it's Ron Howard's last credited acting appearance. You can oh. say that. So I don't so know. He killed his acting career. That's great. It, well, at least it gave us Ron Howard, the director. It sure did. All right. Well, let's roll into connecting points and then our lessons. So, yeah. For connecting point, this is the thing that I loved about the movie, and I had to make it the connecting point. It's not the story. It's the music. 
it was such a standout to me. And I went through a huge oldies phase in high school. It was Cool 95 FM is what it was called. Patrick, if you're listening, you'll remember this. It played all 50s, 60s, and 70s music. And just like Kurt does in the film, I remember this type of action. I remember calling into the radio show to get a message across to a girl who hopefully was listening. That was like our generation's version of subtweeting or vague booking. So the music in this, it it just is incredible. It's an awesome soundtrack. It had me remembering all of that. I was singing along throughout the whole film. I would honestly watch it again just to listen to it. It's got a nearly constant flow of songs playing. And it really reminded me of something like Almost Famous, how critical the music of the era is to the storytelling because this film also uses music expertly. So lyrics of the songs being used apply to the situation quite frequently. And that's a very, very cool directing choice. So I thought it was like that decade's version of almost famous basically. And I loved it. I thought the music was so great. So that was my connecting point. Uh, Mine's really just the same connecting point is also music because it's kind of family inspiration. Um, Like I said before, American graffiti is one of my mother's all time favorite films. Uh, She would have been 22 in 1973. And I have to think that that 1962 setting for her kind of evoked kind of home in that time period of music. She enjoyed our, our local oldie station in my youth in the eighties was uh, oldies 104.3 with Dick Biondi. And that was a number one preset of its car. So if it wasn't the oldie station, it was the country station. And the only stations you ever got in my mother's car. So if we complained about enough country, we got the oldie station. So yeah, all that, all those doo-wop 50s and 60s, really awesome music. I love the vibrancy of it. In fact, the American Graffiti soundtrack is is on a playlist in my iPod as we speak right now because it's and it's been there for years. So it's just good stuff. Um, but I'm with you. It's um, this might be the use of diegetic soundtrack i've ever seen in the history of films because it, it like you said it's constant it cues in the, exactly the right places and it's always going on and always in a good place and the fun fact where like you said the effect that that achieved it, it was by accident you know um the, wow. the kind of the production note i got is um the budget kept this film from getting a proper score they couldn't afford a composer or the, or the time to get it done so they just said well let's just fill where we can with music and sure enough we have this per you know this night of perfect playlist and song and honestly for me now that you look at it a score would have been ridiculous and unnecessary right. yeah. i don't know what octave score you put here wholly different film at that point yeah. and what's interesting is the difference in the time period because we if you're reading that the budget was the constraint there yeah in modern times the budget constraint would be getting the rights to 20 songs from oh, yeah. the past versus just pay somebody to do a score mm-hmm. it would be cheaper and, uh, and it's cool because I like that, um, you know, for, for its era, it, it's, it's not a whole bunch of just number ones either. You know, it's a, it's an eclectic mix of, I can't say straight B sides and, and uncovered songs or anything. It's got some headliners, but at the same time, it's got a lot of little stuff too that you wouldn't think it's being, that wasn't super duper big. So, and same thing like, like you said, a good compass can hardly wait. Can hardly wait had a few, you know, mainstream big things but then they had a lot of little indie score you know indie pieces along the way where it's a good blend of soundtrack where it's not too popular not too over the top not too obvious yep. you know i think the i think the moments here in the film really match and blend with the music so well on yeah same thing great connecting point awesome what about lessons why don't you lead us off what was your life lesson or takeaway from this 
Uh, sure. Um, for me, my takeaway is, is kind of where when I look at this film and I go, what would my youth look like in this film? For me, it's um, the meaning of an automobile because this is such a car movie. I think there are many coming of age films that work in American Graffiti. Some of them are like the post high school transition decision of staying or leaving home, education, or no education, all those things we normally see. But I think the action of freeing oneself starts with a character defining piece of property. And that's your car. Because in that era, and even in, still in this era now, a car is a big deal. A, a car is winged. car gets you going. And the film itself, American Graffiti, is such a wet dream for ogling car lovers and mankind's relationship with machines and that whole theme where I, I know I'm drawn to it. I'm not a gearhead. I'm not a car guy. I fix barely little things in my car, but I look at a good looking car and I stare. I was telling my wife the other day, in fact, where we were on our way to church and we were pointing out cars along the way because my, my kids are starting to notice cars and how they're different, or at least they can spot a car that looks like their dad's car. And I was trying to explain to my wife in the car, like, you know, they, they mold those out of clay first before they ever build them up, you know, full size. And she's like, what? I said, well, yeah, there's some artistry here. Look at this car. Do this. Look at this car. Do that. And she's like, you're joking, right? You know, what are you talking about? Well, how is this magical? How is this cool? How is this sexy? I'm like, all right, honey, you don't get it, but it's good. But for me, I think the draw goes beyond the paint colors and the body lines. It, the idea for me is that a car is a conduit and a symbol for so many ideals of a teen becoming his or her own adult, you know, because it grants freedom and independence to, um, it expands boundaries, uh, dreams that'll go as far as the gas will take you. There's also that measure of responsibility and personal pride in maintaining it. Like this is my car and I'm going to take care of it. Or, you know what, I'm going to modify it and soup it up and make it my own and special. The social status that it grants and, and shares outwardly, like, Hey, this is, this is my beater crappy car. Or, Hey, look, I, I saved up enough money and I have this nice car. And just the idea, especially in this film, where that's how they net girl, where um, when you get to be a guest in someone else's car, you've entered a circle of trust and acceptance that I never had in my generation, where to them, it's a big deal. That's not that it's going steady and not that it's 12 year old little girl in, in, in John's car, but you get to come in my car, you get to come in my circle. So I, I just I just love that idea of what the meaning of an automobile and just how that for the last 90 years, how that's a cultural importance that that's your first and closest piece of property that takes you everywhere you want to go. It's it's a tool, but it's also a statement. And I really enjoy seeing this film maybe better than other films. Like You can take the Fast and the Furious and any of that crap. This, this is the meaning of an automobile kind of film. The way that, I know this can be a terrible comp, but the way that War Horse is a horse film and how that how that before the car was a big deal like when you have your own horse you're a man when you have your own car you're a man now and that's where i that was my life lesson i couldn't i i love taking all that away that's awesome i definitely can see that coming out of this film absolutely would agree with that that's another area where i think some people modern day viewers might have issue with it from a feminism standpoint of you know this is how guys get girls is right i got a car well that means that i obviously deserve to have a girl this is like historical folks it's historical okay unfortunately everything in the past isn't exactly how we might think it should ideally have been that's I love the way you said that the way it was and this mm -hmm. captures that perfectly and you know there was a car full of girls too that had some agency and she said, no, I'm not getting out of my car and coming in and getting in your car. Of course, she let her 12-year-old sister go with a random guy, which was probably not smart. But anyway, no. I digress. So my takeaway from this is literally a line from maybe the first two minutes of the movie. Steven 
when they're at the car hop, like Sonic-esque restaurant, he says, you just can't stay 17 forever. And the lesson here for me is that high school ends and adulthood begins. And what this film is really giving us an experience of is folks who are clinging to that last freedom of youth. And they must always have an eye on what's next while enjoying in the moment because it's not sustainable. So they can't get wrapped up in just tonight, but that's what you do. That's what you want to do. You want to put everything in this bubble and remember it because it's going to be epic and it's going to wholly sustain us for however long when we go on and we do these other things that now responsibility takes over. But life doesn't stop moving so that we can be 17 or 29 or 40. And for me, it's a reminder that we should enjoy the moment that we're in for what it is. Soak it up. Go cruise in the strip for one night, but always be ready and preparing for what's coming around the corner at the same time. Don't go into that next morning without being ready to take that step of responsibility. So that's kind of how I read this film. Yeah. I like it. You know, that's, that's good. I, I like the ending part of what you're saying. It really matches the best is the, the preparedness. And we saw that in these characters where they got to that morning and they had figured stuff out. And, and I think we see a lot of movies where that disillusionment never washes away and they're still kind of screwed up. So it's nice to see some characters have a good night that fixes them. Uh, it's rare. Yeah. You know, I think we see yeah. a lot that are more scattered and more break them than anything, but yeah, oh, yeah. I totally agree. Awesome, man. I'm glad we picked this one. I'm glad that it was fit in because I love getting to discover stuff. I love the tie-in, the the reason for choosing this, the fact that it's a Ron Howard, Harrison Ford, kind of George Lucas pairing to go with Solo that's out in theaters now. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of fun. I'm glad we watched it. It's de- If nothing else, it has given me a soundtrack that I want on my Spotify as a playlist because I want to listen to it over and over and over again. And it's reinvigorated my enjoyment of the oldies. That's the thing that this triggered is I've already started re-listening to those stations and getting back into some of those. And the cool thing is I listened to it so much that I, yeah. I just knew the words. I knew every word, every song when they came on, I just started singing during the movie. It was great. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It depends. Some of that goes with age a little bit. Like I've heard the statistic and I'm making this completely up that when you reach the age of 33, you stop caring about popular music. So I'm 38. Like Ed Sheeran's the most current person I remember ever being a new artist. So after everything after that, I'm that old foggy fart who doesn't know what modern music is. 95% of the music on my iPod, Spotify or whatever is is older than I am. And I'm completely at peace with that. It's, that. it's just the wheelhouse I like to be. That's intriguing. I'm thinking right now about when I kind of fell off the caring about music wagon. And it's right around then. Yeah, it really is right around then. And now it's all older stuff for the most part and or mm-hmm. film related you know, score oh, yeah. soundtracks. Totally, totally. Cool, man. Well, where can people find you on social media? Where can they find your work if they want to contact you? Right. Um, you know me. It's everymoviehasalesson.com. Um, you can use that term to search between Facebook, Twitter, and otherwise. But everymoviehasalesson.com is the easiest place to find me. Great. Well, you can find me on Twitter specifically at Feelin' Film Aaron or through the main show's feed at Feelin' Film. I'm very active there. I'm also very active along with Don in the Feelin' Film Facebook group, which you can find a link to in the show notes or on our website at feelinfilm.com. We would love to have you come join that group and start 
conversating with the rest of the cinephiles in it. And of course, commenting on this post so you can get entered into our awesome drawing at the end of the year. Don, what are we doing next month? Well, we've been putting this one off for a while because we just keep finding new themes and new places to put our connection with classics to kind of either arrange anniversaries or holiday. But we got a big one and we need something that still is in the heat of summer. So go to San Francisco, get your mind twisted and mended and and botched and hit and smashed around because we're going to watch Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which tops a lot of lists on a lot of other places as the top film of all time. Is it number one on the AFI? 10-year anniversary one? I can't remember. It's it or Citizen Kane. It bounces back yeah. and forth. So we're going for some creme de la creme top shelf stuff here next month. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening. We look forward to talking about that Hitchcock film next month and hope you'll tune in for it as well. As always, stay positive and keep connecting with class. Thank you.